Welcome to Risk Roundup. The assets identified as critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short CGS, are vital for the survival, success, and sustainability of respective nations as they contribute to its very progress and development. These systems and assets, whether physical, digital, financial, or virtual, are so vital to the nation that the incapacity or destruction of such systems or assets would have a debilitating impact on not only the physical or geopolitical security, but also the economic security, public health or safety, or any combination of those matters. These infrastructures must maintain their optimal conditions under all circumstances. Safeguarding the critical infrastructures in cyberspace, geospace, and space needs to be the utmost priority for each and every nation, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, in short referred to as NGIOAI. The well-being of the planet, human species, regions, nations, and industries relies upon the safety, security, and sustainability of the critical infrastructure. Those asset systems and networks in cyberspace, geospace, and space that underpin the very fundamentals of a sustainable society. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Ernest Roney, an Air Force Intelligence Officer and decorated with National Intelligence Council Medallion. Ernest is now a Senior Global Cybersecurity Advisor at AES Corporation, helping shape the much needed dialogue on critical infrastructure and industrial control systems. Welcome Ernest, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you, Jaisri. It's a pleasure to be here to speak about such an important topic. Wonderful, Ernest. So for the sake of our global viewers and listeners, let's begin by defining and explaining what is critical infrastructure. Can you explain in the simplest terms possible what do we mean by critical infrastructure? Absolutely. Critical infrastructures, basically the, the underpinning systems that enable modern life I mean, it's what allows us as a globe to structurally support 7.3 billion people. These include systems such as water, transportation, electric, obviously, uh, oil and gas, telecommunications, and even in uh, advanced societies or uh, developed societies, uh, financial and banking, obviously, is a critical underpinning system. That is a very good explanation, Ernest. Uh now, why do some infrastructure in CGS, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space, get classified as a global or national concern? Are there any criteria that you know would determine those? I think in regards to a number of issues, you have potential for loss of life, you have regional, national, global economic capabilities and impact, National defense, obviously, is one that rises to the top very, uh, very often. Uh, but also uh, quality of life. Uh, maintaining the integrity of social cohesion and trust is something that's not really thought about. But think about uh, how society existed before the telephone and telegraph. Um, the ability to organize and manage a large country like the US uh, would be very difficult if you didn't have some of these underlying uh, capabilities or infrastructures. Yes, yes, no, that is very true. Now, does the identification of critical infrastructure remain same across nations? Because some nations would think that, okay, these are the 
are different, you know, assets that this country has defined as critical infrastructure, does that mean that has to be the same for that particular nation? So what is generally or commonly identified as critical infrastructure for each, you know, respective nation? Well, that's the key term, each nation. It's really dependent upon uh, the nation or the region, how developed and integrated the infrastructure really is. Uh, most people in the West would immediately identify electricity, for example, as you know, a key infrastructure or a key aspect uh, for supporting uh, life and society. If you travel to Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, you generally will hear more about water first, uh, because obviously, based on availability and perception, that's what's critical to day-to-day -day existence. Yes, that's um, very true. Very, very true, uh, Ernest. Now, these the infrastructure that is important to any particular nation's survival has been in existence for a very long time. However, its security risks have come in question only over the last few years. Why have these infrastructures suddenly become so vulnerable to security challenges? Technology. Uh, as we've advanced and marched through time, uh, a lot of these infrastructures that we depend upon, uh, take for example electric, electric sector, which is one of my, uh, you know, my uh, close to my heart. That's a technology that's almost 100 years old, or actually a little over 100 years old, in regards to a, uh, a structured system from a mechanical standpoint. However, what we've done in the intervening time period is we've layered different technologies, uh, manual, then automated, then digital technology uh, control systems over top to where we've basically developed these layers, almost like a, like a geographic or geological time frame or a geographical a geological layering, excuse me. And what happens is those layers don't always mesh exactly uh, the same way. So at the intersections, say, between the mechanical system and the automated system or the digital system, you have uh, information technology is what we classify uh, the world today or how we run the world today is um, really designed more for ease of use than it is for security with for obvious reasons. The problem is that we are now taking a technology and in order to gain additional efficiencies and, and effectiveness out of infrastructure. We are layering information technologies, internet protocols, for example, uh, standardized protocols over top of these existing systems, and we're basically making them more vulnerable in the process. Again, it has to do with the fact that IP, the internet protocol, which is the basis for most uh, information technology, was designed as an open technology in order to enable it to survive, uh, you know, disruptions in systems. But it wasn't; it was designed to survive disruptions in terms of physical loss of nodes, not in terms of paper attack within the system itself. Yes, you yeah, know that is very good analysis, and like you say, that so far we have focused only on functionalities. And uh, the attention has not been on, or the focus has not been on the security. Those are the big challenges that we are facing right now. So uh, based on your experience uh, over the years working in this uh, field, what do you think are the most critical threats to critical infrastructures if you look at you know, cyberspace, geospace, or space? Well, I tend to break it down into three areas, um, or 
three three types of threats. You have environmental, you know, weather, climate, solar storms, EMP, if you will, type uh, events, uh, solar magnetic storms. Physical, um, the classic uh, classic kinetic kill, um, you know, near and dear to my, my old days as an Air Force officer. And then, of course, cyber, which is the, the more growing, the more prevalent now, and also the, the more difficult to provide attribution to, and also and the physical attack options. So that's why I think we're seeing more and more of uh, this focus on uh, exploitation, <coughs> excuse me, exploitation and reconnaissance and eventual attacks in the, uh, the cyber digital world. Yes, no, that is very true. Now, based on your, you know, experience right now, because you have been working in this field for so many years, what do you see are the common vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure, irrespective of which nation we are talking about? It doesn't matter whether it's United States or China or India or any other nation. What do you see are the most common vulner security vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure that you see, you know, across nations? Well, I mean, the first one to, to really uh, take on, if you will, is just the fact of physical size geographic distribution for most of these infra infrastructures by their own definition are designed to deliver either demographic area or geographic and demographic uh, uh, environment. So based on that, uh, you have issues in regards to you can't really protect every node of the, uh, on the system uh, from a physical standpoint. The same is developing the cyber world. It's very difficult with these sprawling systems, especially as we provide more and more connectivity as the Internet of Things basically broadens the footprint and the vulnerability footprints, what I'm speaking thereof, uh, as well as the uh, availability of access to, uh, to, to the Internet and to systems that are connected to the Internet. Uh, so, you know, from a vulnerability standpoint, uh, the, there's really the, the issue of we have increased our dependency, we've increased the vulnerabilities because of the open architecture, and we've increased the, the threats uh, environment because, ironically, in uh, spreading the internet to increase communication, increase integration of society, and and I think the original thought was it would, you know, it's to make society better, if you will, or make the world a better place. Uh, we've also, like uh, a lot of other technologies, developed something that has a, a second edge, something that can be used in a, uh, in a malicious stamp, you know, from a malicious standpoint or a malicious way. Um, so, I mean, and for the systems that we're talking about, the, uh, the more powerful attacks actually, no matter where you're talking about, uh, Asia, uh, North America, South America, Europe, are, and what we're beginning to see some examples are, are what we call, you know, basically combined cyber physical attacks, where you, because the systems are so dependent upon the intelligent, the ITR infrastructure, if you start destroying particular nodes from a physical standpoint, uh, you can damage the system by, by uh, the ability of those nodes to communicate with the larger control uh, environment. So 
MedCAF was a prime example of this where you had a physical attack that also contained sort of a cyber element because in addition to and the MedCAF attack, a MedCAF attack in California, excuse me, for those who are unaware, is an attack on a, uh, an electrical substation near 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 Silicon Valley. Um, it involved basically uh, shooting up the uh, the transformers in the substation, as well as uh, before they did that, the actual physical attack, they cut the uh, communication lines back to the control center. So it was uh, basically the control center was blinded to what was really going on. Um, in regards to the attack until until a later time. Uh, there were secondary controls in, set, in place that I don't believe that the attackers knew about, so it was at least able, the, the uh, control center was at least able to uh, uh, dispatch and get uh, and re a route around, if you will, so there was no loss of power in the area. But if they that had not been the case, there, you could have had a potential major black hole. Oh. So, so those issues, you know, like I said, the the combination of the physical and the cyber together become very powerful if you know what you're doing because you can take out critical nodes from a physical standpoint, and you can also now we're getting to the point where there's at least the capability, um, although it hasn't been seen in the wild yet, where theoretically you could actually whereas you go from just turning things off as we saw in the Ukraine a few weeks ago uh, to if you know a little bit better what you're doing you can actually cause physical damage to the equipment and therefore take the uh, the asset offline that way so um, if you're a smart adversary a combination of those two uh, whether you're talking about a nation state or insurgency group or whatever or you know just those willing to do malicious acts um, have uh, have major impact uh, if you are able to hit the right nose at the right time. Oh, that is definitely good information. Uh, but let me ask you this, Ernest. You said that the control stations were blacked out. So how are critical infrastructures controlled currently? Um, the, let me correct myself. Uh, the control center itself was not blacked out. What was what would happen is they cut the communications back to the control center so that it was difficult for the control center to know what was going on in regards to the substation itself. So now that said, in regards to uh, the recent Ukraine attack uh, that was uh, that was uh, brought to light, uh, like I said, a few, that happened a few weeks ago, the, the data that was brought to light on that indicated that basically the, the adversary in that case actually in addition to penetrating the system and, and being able to turn off equipment uh, apparently also conducted a uh, attack on the telecom uh, service switch uh, network that they actually used so customers couldn't actually call in to let the control center know that the uh, their power was out so that makes it much more difficult for or made it much difficult for the utility to then figure out what do we need to do in regards to returning service to the customers. Right, I know no, definitely the, that is uh, good information. Now, based on different, how you work with each different nation, how are, and not only nation, but also different industries, different, you know, sectors that you're working with critical infrastructure, how are they defining or 
what do they constitute that is an attack on critical infrastructure because many number of things could happen to any you know infrastructure whether it's a physical infrastructure or cyber or whether it's uh, financial when do they say that okay we are under attack or there is an attack on our critical infrastructure and on the country involved in the region and a number of factors obviously uh, First of all, let's talk a little bit about what constitutes um, what constitutes the attack. Um, you know, in my mind, yeah, well, this goes back, unfortunately, to my to my uh, air force again to my air force young lieutenant days uh, in the '90s uh, when I was arguing Toffler's war and anti-war with my superiors, and we were standing up the first information warfare squadron. It's not an easy answer to, to define what is a cyber attack, and and the reason for that is it's very difficult to ascribe attribution. In the physical world, you know, there's an attack. Generally, you know who's attacking you, at least in the classic, you know, Clausewitz war sense. Um, insurgencies are a different issue, but, you know, you have an idea and you can generally attribute attribution fairly quickly. The cyber world is much more difficult to do that for a number of reasons, based on technology, the techniques, and so forth. And because of that, it also becomes very difficult to respond. The U.S., like I said back in my days, my Air Force days, we were looking at the issue and we realized even back then, you know, this is 20 years ago almost, that it was going to be very difficult to provide enough evidence to, for, an, for an attack or excuse me, provide enough evidence after an attack, a cyber attack, to then be able to attribute it to someone and to be able to advise either a, a combatant commander, a, a military commander, or uh, even a national, at the national level, national command and control level, uh, that an attack had occurred, that the evidence was, um, you know, ironclad, and that we knew exactly who it was. And to be able to, to say that and therefore have the possibility of a kinetic response, because what people often forget can have a response in regards to a, uh, a cyber attack on critical infrastructure in the cyber world. I mean, assuming you can uh, attribute uh, the attack. But in most cases, most nations are going to respond with a, some sort of physical kinetic attack because they don't have the capability. Um, there are probably, on, you know, you can count on your hand, uh, one hand, the number of countries that have, uh, let's just say, strong cybersecurity, excuse me, cyber attack capabilities, uh, and even smaller set with cybersecurity capabilities. Um, you know, you're talking about the U.S., you're talking about Russia, you're talking about China, Iran, maybe North Korea to a certain extent, depending on your level of sophistication. Uh, most other countries haven't devoted the resources to be able to conduct a cyber attack in response um, or would have a limited capability or would have to rely on an ally. Um, in those cases, you get in, as I was mentioning, get into dangerous waters because if you can't respond with probably you're going to entertain the idea of a physical attack, um, which immediately begins escalation. Uh, so that's that's the issue from uh, you know, from the national command authority and from the you know, from the decision making war 
wartime decision making. Right. Um, going towards your question in regards to, I think the other part of that is what constitutes an attack uh, from the standpoint of uh, what assets. So in my mind, you know, it's very difficult uh, not to not to look at any attempt to degrade or destroy a the ability of a cyber, uh, me, the ability to degrade or destroy the infrastructure's ability to uh, provide services pretty much is what would, I think, constitute an attack. Um, again, the problem then is what level you know, degradation, what level of loss of service for how long and that sort of thing was the proper response. There was this idea, of course, you know, uh, in the Cold War era for a while of flexible response or, uh, you know, escalation. And the question is, okay, what is proper escalation at that point? How do you define that? Each country has to define it for itself. And um, more importantly, what they have not done, most countries have not done, is actually advertise to the world, if you will, or to their adversaries in some way, what exactly is the next step. If you attack my electrical system, is my first response to go back and attack your electrical system, or is my first response to basically, you know, nuke your capital city? And uh, that's, that's something that most countries have not really uh, laid out is what their actual plan of response is in regards to cyber attack. Yes, there are no rules in the cyber world yet defined, you know, so it's uh, exactly confusing, you know, how this is going to shape up. Now, criticality of an infrastructure depends on a nation and its interdependencies both within and across its boundaries. If one of the infrastructure will be attacked, other will also likely be affected. Can you give an example of some of the interdependencies of critical infrastructure that you see across nations? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the way you tend to think about it is, you know, a four-legged stool or four-legged chair. If you if you take out one of the legs, the others may stand up for a while, but it's not going to be very comfortable, and eventually someone's going to fall. Uh, the fact is that uh, Hurricane Sandy, for example, showed how interconnected the uh, electricity and telecom infrastructures are uh, because it's very difficult to, as I mentioned in regards to the Ukraine issue, it's very difficult to bring the power system back up, especially if you have widespread outages with a lot of nodes down, a lot of substations, a lot of damage. Um, if you don't have telecommunications to A, understand, hopefully get the automated system uh, what's going on in each of the substations, but also the ability to dispatch uh, crews to, to repair uh, electric nodes or to, uh, to uh, put new lines up or to even understand where customers have an outage. Um, this also bleeds over into uh, oil and gas, for example. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Without uh, electricity, uh, gas station pumps don't work. So most gas stations may have a backup generator that will last for a certain period of time. And then even though you have fuel, you may not be able to get out of the ground and put it into vehicles you know, for, uh, for rescue or for, uh, for first responders. Um, same issue, I mean, you get similar issues in regards to uh, oil and gas and transportation. Uh, one of the issues we're seeing, and this is less of a, this is not a cyber issue, but it's an interdependency issue, 
in regards to uh, the fact that there's not enough pipeline coming out of North Dakota in regards to the uh, the buildup of oil and gas infrastructure around uh, in regards to uh, uh, fracking and so forth. And we've had to put it onto uh, under rolling stock onto trains. And that has had an, a falling impact on things like delivery, on things like safety and so forth, uh, concerns about safety anyway. So all of those interdependencies, if you lose uh, one of the key infrastructures, whether that be electricity or water or, uh, or the ability to move oil and gas in from a transportation standpoint, uh, telecommunications, you're basically calling, you're, you're going to quickly find that uh, the others are going to eventually fold just because of the pressure. Um, another one final uh, first world issue, if you will, uh, in regards to infrastructure interdependencies is uh, modern finance. If you don't have telecommunications, banks don't work anymore. Um, we don't keep the amount of currencies that we used to in place. Everything tends to be electronic. Constantly tells the story uh, about the fact that uh, you know, the power and telecom and the phones went out during a storm in uh, in Georgetown. Uh, he was at dinner with his wife. They were trying to get up, you know, get ready to leave, and. Um, no one could charge a credit card, you know, and so it was a nice establishment. Obviously, he wasn't carrying around that kind of cash, and um, they, you know, they eventually found a way to deal with it. But you know, luckily that was a one-off situation for a 24-hour period. But you know, those are the sort of things that happen when you lose critical aspects of the infrastructure. Yes, no, that's very, very true. Now, we all know that the interdependencies are very complex. They are growing every day. The security uh, vulnerabilities are, you know, numerous and a lot of them, we don't even know what they are. And on top of it, the softwares that are being used uh, for the digitalization and for the connectivity, they are themselves, you know, not secured. They are not built on the fundamentals of security. So there are very complex challenges. Now, amidst all that, how can nations secure a critical infrastructure and ensure its continuity? First and foremost, uh, we need to understand that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. You know, one country will have one set of solutions, another will have another. It's all based on you know principles and concepts. Uh, kind of have to be customized according to the nation, its technology base. I mean, there's a difference between say Japan and Somalia. Um, demo demographics and population distribution also come into play. You know, major urban centers versus uh, rural uh, societal precepts. Um, you know, the argument between the U.S. and Europe right now about uh, privacy and encryption. Those sorts of things come into play as well. Um, and you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but position on the world, position on the world stage, excuse me, uh, also comes into play because if the higher user rate in regards to uh, uh, developed infrastructure capabilities and and influence, then the bigger target you're going to be you know, as a you know, as a from a national standpoint. Um, so things to consider, though, I mean specifically that have to be weighed by the uh, the national players. Um, if you're thinking about this in regards to your your country, um, one is partnerships, uh, commercial infrastructure providers, and government. Um, 
both regulatory, law enforcement, defense, you know, and then also government and the IT industry within the country should uh, should be uh, a, a point of uh, of interest, let's just say, uh, because in reality, uh, depending on the, the type of uh, infrastructure you have, depending on how uh, how much information technology you have in place, if you will, uh, could have a major impact on a government's ability to even have uh, the knowledge and the the expertise to respond, much less defend its infrastructure, respond to an incident, much less respond. Yes, no, that, that is very true, Ernest. Now, the critical infrastructure in cyberspace, infrastructure and information that is perceived as an essential part of national security in most across most nations today is commonly understood to be an infrastructure or asset in the cyberspace, the incapacitation or destruction of which would have a debilitating impact on the national security and the economic and social welfare of a nation like you were just you know talking about that without information and communication technology pretty much you know most of the things that we are doing in a modern world would collapse so who is responsible for the security of the critical infrastructure in cyberspace within any nation let's talk about you know united states who is responsible is because you know critical infrastructure is not just owned by you know governments it is also owned by, you know, private corporations. So who is responsible eventually for the security or the of the critical infrastructure? Well, the, you know, however, um, in regards to the U.S., for example, um, because you, because of the way that power is, devolved in a federated system it's even more complex than uh, say in a more centralized economy um, for the US uh, there's a shared responsibility like as I said there's the idea of partnerships um, and we're working through this uh, the US is uh, in regards to how do you properly partner government with commercial because as you noted in most cases the infrastructure is not owned by the government, it's owned by commercial entities and sometimes regulated and sometimes actually you know, free private uh, you know, investor owned. And in those cases, it's very difficult for you know, a democratic government to instruct a free enterprise uh, organization or company resources in a particular way. Uh, the way the U.S. is getting, you know, is sort of circling around that problem, if you will, is a couple of things. One, uh, the government is working with commercial entities to to understand their their problems, if you will, their concerns uh, in regards to how they defend their infrastructure. Also, uh, you have. NIST, the frame, the, the cybersecurity framework that's been developed uh, to sort of help commercial entities um, along with other standards that are in place. Uh, you're also see, also seeing a case where the, the government, i.e. DHS and other entities within the government are, you know, with limited resources offering to uh, come out and, you know, test, if you will, how, how mature, how good your cybersecurity programs are for uh, certain, you know, for certain critical infrastructure uh, organizations or 
Uh, so uh, depending on that uh, is not necessarily, you know, a lot of cases the timeliness of that is not uh, immediate, let's put it that way. Um, the other thing is the, the, from a legislative standpoint, um, you know, we saw CISA passed just recently and that is uh, going to help commercial companies in regards to being able to report when things happen without having to worry about uh, some of the liabilities issues that um, that at least in the electric sector have, have been a major concern. Um, so those types of situations where you make it easier to share information, government makes it easier to share information, uh, the ISACs that the government has helped set up, the information sharing analysis centers um, are you know definite um, concept that I think should be replicated by other other governments if they're looking at how they can uh, help industry and not just try to regulate the issue. Um, the problem we have with in regards to cybersecurity, and I will tell you, having been on the you know the government spent a fair amount of time on the commercial side. You know, in government, you are as you said, you're worried about security. You're worried, you're not necessarily as worried about the price tag, um, because you know the dollars that you you receive are netted for that particular you know or set aside for fenced for that particular um, function. In a commercial entity, there's a bottom line. They're always at the bottom line. <laughs> and you know, you want to make sure that you're able to provide your customers, whether it be government or retail or um, you know or wholesale or uh, residential customers, uh, the best service and the most secure uh, that you can understanding that you don't have an infinite amount of resources and infinite amount of dollars to, to spend. Uh, especially in, when you look at the mid-sized and smaller utilities, whether it be water, uh, gas, or electricity in the U.S., it's not the federal government who makes decisions about that. Um, regulated utilities, they have a, a state level, generally, or local level, uh, regulatory authority that they have to go to and defend from a business standpoint why they should be able to raise, you know, for example, electric sector another penny per kilowatt on residences, uh, you know, every kilowatt a resident uses uh, in order to increase security, uh, the cybersecurity of the system. Um, so it happens. I mean, utilities do that, but it is all based on a business decision, a business risk decision. And one thing that I I've definitely learned, if you will, um, in regards to cybersecurity uh, is that in a commercial sense, you always have to be worried about how the cyber risk works, trades with, impacts the business risk. Yes, very true, very, very true. Now, each of, each of the assets, whether it's assets in the geospace, that means physical assets, or assets in cyberspace or assets in space, each will require a very different approach to secure. So how do we protect the critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace, and space? Because in cyberspace, there are a lot of commonalities. It's a contested common space. So everybody is you know, involved in that. Nations, geographical boundaries would you know, define what are those physical assets and we can you know, contain that. But again, space also is the same story, just like cyberspace that you know, all the assets are contested common. So how do we protect the critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace, and space? Well, 
you, you ask such easy questions, Jayzeri. Um, from a, you know, again, looking at this from a from a cyber perspective, if you will, and, and by that I'm also talking about the fact is that, you know, satellite systems, and you know, even the the International Space Space Station, all are operated utilizing information technology of some sort or another, telecommunications technology in the case as a kid. Uh, I remember uh, back in my uh, former life when I had a, I was uh, head of uh, cybersecurity uh, and assurance for a, a large uh, consulting organization, a cons consulting company. Uh, my team members came to me one day with with an assignment we, or we received about uh, the need to uh, accredit the security of the uh, the International Space Space Station system uh, there. Information systems on the International Space Station. I tried saying that three times. Uh, yeah, looking back at, it, I was a surprised that they'd even thought about it, but I, at the same time, I was also pleased that they had thought about it and were, had asked someone to take, you know, to take a look at it. Yeah, so that was probably ten years ago. So I, I think that there's a couple of different ways in regards to how we protect them. There's there's first the issue that we have to understand what we have. Now, this is a very basic. You have to know what you're trying to protect. Yes, and a lot of times, that's forgotten. Or uh, when we do figure out what we have to protect, we decide no, we're going to protect everything. And when you know, and there's an axiom about that too. When you protect everything, you protect nothing. So at least in the first part is. Find it, figure out what your assets are in those those realms. Determine then, based on that, what are your priorities? What are the critical nodes? What happens if you know if I lose these five nodes, nothing happens, or it may be painful, but the system itself survives. However, if I lose you know this sixth one here, then the whole system collapses. You know, there's a cascade. So obviously, I'm going to spend a little more on that six that sixth. Uh, asset, whether it be uh, you know a satellite, whether it be you know telecommunication satellite or a uh, you know a electricity node or you know a substation or um, you know or like some module on the on the station. In regards to that, the simplest thing is to actually understand what you're protecting, prioritize it, understand the, understand the interdependencies. And not just within the system, but potentially, as we talked about before, between the systems, the infrastructures. And then you actually have to make the decision to invest the resources. Um, and that comes down to someone having the authority to obey, to, generally there's an accountability issue, or uh, accountability and authority issue, let's put it that way. In the end, there has to be a single belly button, a single individual, who understands the risk to the system, okay, understands the risk if something happens to the system, and then is willing and able to make the decision that that risk requires this much investment in regards to mitigating security of some sort. Or if they decide they don't, then they know that they're the ones on the hook if something bad happens in regards to that. They've accepted that they're on what tends to happen in a lot of organizations and government, commercial or otherwise, is either people make decisions about risk that they're really not 
at the right level to make. You know, it's not theirs to make, or there's no one to make the decision. So, uh, or no one to take uh, authority for that decision, and therefore everyone just assumes, well, it's not my problem. Yes, no, that is very true, Ernest. And actually, in fact, uh, the points that you describe, like identify and understand your assets, prioritize them, and then uh, define the resources that you need, and then make proper investments. But to do all that irrespective of whether it's a private organization, private corporation, or it's a public entity. It requires a proper structure, organizational structure. Now, we see that, you know, across, you know, nations, government, industries, organizations, academia, we don't have a defined structure to identify, evaluate, and manage risk for the, not only independent risk that, you know, entities can manage on their own, but also the interdependent risk that you are talking about. We just don't have the framework for that. Uh, even if, uh, let's say, you know, entity A finds out that there are some risks, very critical risks that would, you know, impact the other companies within their sector or industry, or it could impact other industries or nation, they just don't have a way to take that information, scale it, and, you know, uh, flag it and let others know that this is a very critical risk. We just don't have the structure for that. So what should be the structure of the organization responsible for managing the security risk of critical infrastructure, irrespective of cyberspace, geospace, and space, because we have so many interdependencies and we just don't have the right organizational structure. Uh, it's a, this is a, you know, a, a multi-year, if not multi-decade uh, issue to resolve, I'll be quite honest. That said, uh, I think, and I'll, I'll go back again, it depends upon the, type of infrastructures that the nation has, the level of integration of those infrastructures, uh, to, uh, how dependent they are on one another or how independent the case may be if they're, uh, if they're not as interwoven, because um, that will influence the type of organizations you need in regards to response. Um, again, you know, going back to my statement about no, no one-size-fits-all uh, structure, um, you have, for example, uh, you know, let's take, okay, let's go outside the U.S. and we'll, I'll come back to that because I think there's some good examples we've talked a little bit about, but I'll expand upon in regards to the U.S. Uh, has been trying to do. But uh, also, if you look at, for example, Singapore, um, you know, Singapore has the benefit of being a you know, highly developed uh, infrastructure and society within a fairly small defined geographic area. So there's, you know, they have some some benefits they can play off in that regard. Uh, they've taken a very, uh, and also their government tends to be a more, um, what's the right word, uh, have a mentality uh, than say, um, and, and more directive and be closer to problems because they are a city versus a, you know, a large country like the US or Russia where you have multiple areas of government and so forth. Um, yeah, they've taken it upon themselves in the last couple of years, actually, yeah, last 18 months to two years, to address cybersecurity and address these threats, these technology threats, in a very um, defined way. Um, they've basically said, we're going to uh, you know, we're going to establish governmental entities that are going to be responsible for evaluating and, and uh, responding to these types of uh, issues. 
they've also uh, you know decided that it, they're going to play on the on the uh, on the advantage or on the uh, benefit they already have in the fact that uh, because of the structure of the society of government uh, personnel in regards to you know, executives and with commercial executives tend to be very tight. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of commonality, inter interlacing, if you will. So that's a case where you have a society that is able to play upon some of its strengths, uh, things that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily look, look at or necessarily be able to do in the U.S. because of a different structure. Uh, in the U.S., um, the advantage, I think, from the U.S. perspective is, again, going back to the whole idea of the ISACs and the information sharing and forming communities where we can share information, where if a utility in Utah is suddenly under attack, they can send, uh, you know, they can communicate with the uh, electricity ISAC and communicate what they're seeing, what their, uh, what is the impact, and all of those things, as well as um, you know, to the energy ISAC, but they also have you know connectivity to uh, to regional authorities and to uh, you know, um, so there are communication mechanisms, and that was that's the most critical thing. If you don't have the ability to communicate, to provide notification, uh, to share the information, share what's happening, then you're absolutely right. You you wind up with um, very, everyone's sort of isolated and trying to fight their own ship. Whereas if you're able to bring that information together to corral it, um, you know, one of the impressive aspects of Grid X3 this year was the fact that, uh, you know, there, you know, we have issues in the industry within, uh, you know, the grid, but the fact is that uh, the ability to share information, communicate information is very powerful. And it was very, and very helpful in regards to not just letting other people know what is happening, but also how to respond, how to you know, bring more minds into play, and how to coordinate a response in some cases, if that's, you know, in a lot of cases that would be necessary. So the fact is that I think from a nation, a nation's perspective, you do have to have some sort of coordinating, someone who will be responsible and will coordinate, whether it be, you know, someone under DHS or someone under um, you know, the energy ministry or someone under uh, a cabinet position uh, somewhere else, you know, it, it almost goes back to that, that statement I made about someone being, being able to accept the risk. Those people are not necessarily going to accept the risk for every vulnerability inside a commercial, you know, every commercial entity in, in the country. But what they are going to do is be able to provide the coordination, provide the, the interlacing and, and help provide the response, um, which goes to kind of, I think, the other part of this, which is, I mentioned Grid X3. I think we should be doing that for every infrastructure. There should be exercises, you know, and they don't have to be grand, you know, grand screens looking like the Starship Enterprise or something. Uh, but what they should do is practice how we want how are you going to communicate in the event something goes wrong, whether it be the water sector, the electricity sector, the transportation sector. Um, every country should basically have a plan, if you will, strategy of how they are going to organize in response and then exercise that. I mean, 
that's a very ba another basic tenet of cybersecurity and actually security in general, which is have a plan, have a process, and then exercise it to make sure that it's going to work. And practice it until it breaks and then fix it so that when you get to the real world uh, issue, it doesn't break. Yes, now you're very true. I mean, you're absolutely right that every nation needs to have a strategy, a plan. So let me ask you this now, because you are an advisor, you know, a senior uh, cybersecurity advisor and you advise many nations, how do any individual nation define the national strategy for the protection of the critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace and space? How would they define that? Uh, you know, that I, I since we started talking, I've been thinking about that. And I'm not sure I have a uh, because it's going to again it's going to depend upon the country um, what I you know what I would advise uh, a Singapore to do versus what I would advise you know Somalia or a, a Brazil are you know quite different um, again based on the aspects of the country the culture the the economic uh, and security issues and so forth uh, but I think where you have to start is you have, you know, it goes back to that question we had before. Um, what do you have? What do you have and what's important? And then based on that, you can decide, okay, what's my priority in regards to what I then need to protect? Once I define what I need to protect, then I need to have a strategy for how am I going to do that? You know, it, you know, it, it's not rocket science, so to speak. It is, okay, here's my priorities. Here's what I've got that I know if I lose this, societal impact follows. How are we going to respond to that? And that strategy really is not so much about how do I, uh, how do I respond, but how do I marshal the resources to respond? Respond is in the plan, but the strategy really needs to be who and what are we going to be able to marshal in regards to not necessarily protection, although hopefully you are working protection as well, but how do you how you're going to respond? Now, for those that have the resources, the capabilities, and you know can think about this from a protection standpoint, because you really should, um, that gets into the issue of not just what do I have that I'm worried about losing, but what do I have that I can actually use to protect or I can leverage? Um, for example, uh, I, would be honest, I don't think the U.S. leverages Silicon Valley anywhere near as well as it should. Um, and I think that their technical infrastructure or their IT infrastructure and the companies that operate within their, their borders um, I'm not saying that you know you, they need twisting arms. What I'm saying is, go and ask them. Um, you know, go talk to the people who actually design these systems. Go talk to the people that are actually um, thinking up the next great thing in regards to uh, you know def hopefully defense, but also in regards to functionality. Because in regards to the strategy, the strategy is before looking. So you can determine point in time. This is what we need to do. These are the resources we have. These are the pieces on the board this is how we're going to play them. But the problem is if you're not looking at that, you know, I won't say every day, but you know, probably at least every week, uh, every month, and understanding how the pieces have moved while you were looking away and how new pieces have come on the board and maybe some others have left, and then how you're going to, you know, respond to that, 
how your strategy needs to change and respond to that. And you're going to you're going to be shortchanging yourself, and you're going to be potentially uh, you know, not necessarily going to be the strategy you need when you need it. Yes, no, I, I agree with you on that. But now, you know, each nation, they have some infrastructures that are very critical for their particular nation, which doesn't have inter interdependencies with other nations. But there are a lot of, you know, assets on for which, you know, there are interdependencies. So should the nations define the security strategy independently, uh, you know, even for those uh, assets on for which the interdependencies are there, or should they do it collectively with all other nations? Because there are several assets, like financial system, if you talk about, or, you know, uh, cyberspace, if you talk about. I mean, these these are, this is a common for each nation. So absolutely. Are they going to define the strategy to secure it independently or they are going to do it collectively? I think you're going to see, I think you are already and will see both. And what I mean by that is basically you're going to have to have a two tier system. The um, case where countries are sort of getting their own houses in order, that they are defining how they are going to protect and defend and respond, um, marshal their resources uh, in regards to those assets that they have, those critical assets, critical, critical systems that they have within their boundaries. When you start talking about the interconnections, which is what we're talking about here, um, whether it be something which is very, you know, transparent and ethereal of banking, or something very substantial and uh, geographically, you know, geographically pinned, such as uh, oil and gas, for example. Uh, I think you what you're going to find then is once you understand again, this goes back to the you know, know what you got. You know, once you identify what you have and what how important it is to you, uh, you then need to worry. Need, then need to work on. Well, what regards to looking outside our borders, right? Start looking at the regional issues. We're already seeing that come into play um, in regards to concerns of like oil and gas infrastructure, for example, because we know that you know Europe has a, a huge dependency on, on Russian gas and, and uh, other uh, other assets coming out of uh, out of the Siberia. Um, one of the things that would be a recommendation for them, obviously, is, and for most cases, if you have a highly focused dependency, you need to figure out how to diversify, A, if you are not able to come to a common understanding in regards to economic safety and, uh, and, and what's the right word? If you're not able to trust that you have conjoined interests, let's put it that way, with the uh, the individual country you're with, um, so obviously you want diversif diversification in that standpoint. From that standpoint, the other uh, aspect in regards to this, though, is what I think you're getting at. For example, with the financial sector, I think we're going to see going forward that you are going to have uh, once nations have their uh, their systems in order uh, they're going to basically look out and they're going to go okay 
we know our, if something happens, our system will survive you know, up to this level. We have this level of confidence, this level of trust. Um, what's your level of trust? Tell us if we are the same in regards, you know, by this I mean the, the, the country across the border, the neighbor. Tell us if you have uh, what you've done to secure your systems, you know, at least to the, to, to the point of understanding that you're both operating at a similar level in regard to how secure your, your networks, your infrastructures are. And if you will, uh, in regards to negotiations at the national level, we're already seeing some of these issues, for example, between the U.S. and Europe about data protection. Um, different concepts of what data protection is or what how, how important certain data sets are and how you secure them, how secure are they. Um, so, I mean, I think we're already seeing a move in that regard. We'll see it in other infrastructures as well. Now, waters can become very important in certain parts of the world in the near future as we continue to have population growth and, and other factors in play. Um, so, you know, then you've got the similar issues in regards to um, if you're dependent upon your neighbor for oil, gas, for water, for uh, electricity, uh, for example, if you don't produce enough internally, uh, all of those are going to require that you have more uh, interaction and more than just the existing agreements. With, I think one of the things we'll start to see, and we see this already in where, similar to what I was talking about before, for example, cloud computing is becoming much more prevalent, and there's a question about security. So, a lot of country, a lot of companies, excuse me, are basically doing what I said in regards to, okay, tell me how secure, tell me what you're doing in regards to securing my data that's now sitting on your cloud. Okay, that meets the criteria, the systems parameters, security parameters for what I consider appropriate. So, I'm going to now share my data with you. I'm going to share. Uh, or not share, but I'm going to use your service. I, I trust you, if you will, that you'll maintain the same level of security that I do. And I think what you're going to see is that's now going to ha start happening at the nation state and the regional level where basically it becomes a question of, you know, country X, this is my security posture in regards to that inf my infrastructure, and I know that I depend upon you uh, in some point or in some way in regards to that infrastructure, we're buying electricity, we're buying I, I need a level of comfort, if you will, that you're protecting your grid or your water supply at the same level. So there's going to be these interjoining, you know, what we call service level agreements, if you will, security uh, level agreements in the commercial world. But I think you're going to have, in a national sense, just as we have right now security agreements in regards to uh, the, the concept of treaty nations, you're going to have similar concept, similar agreements type international agreements that are going to come along in regards to um, ensuring that if something happens to my infrastructure, I'm not going to spread it to yours or vice versa. Right, right. No, that is uh, certainly good information, Ernest. Now, you, you said that, you know, depending on uh, what their nation's requirements are, each they, each nation needs to define things uh, from their perspective, from their priorities, uh, from their criticality of the infrastructure. So how do 
nations define that this infrastructure is critical for us and these would be defined as now critical infrastructure is there a structure process which they go through to identify understand and uh, define that this is our critical infrastructure i think there i think there is i don't know if there's necessarily a, a model right now in regards to that specifically you know a recognized international model but i think there's some some basic principles that come into play um, first of all, you know, loss of life. You know, if you lose, and this discussion has been you know, passed around for, for most, you know, most uh, uh, OCE uh, developed countries in regards to if after about three days without electricity, the, the thin veneer of, of uh, civilization begins to peel back a bit uh, because you just, you know, once you lose electricity for that length of, of time, the as we talked about, the, the three-legged stools fall over. Um, that may not be the case for some countries that are used to intermittent power or used to intermittent water or used to intermittent uh, access to, to fuel, oil, and gas. Um, but at some point, you're going to have a breaking. You're going to have a breaking point. Uh, so, you know, first... The first issue that generally comes up is, you know, what about loss of life? You know, what happens to the hospitals? What happens to uh, the food supply? What happens to, you know, et cetera, in regards to, and then how does it negatively impact the, uh, the, the populace? Uh, cities are really problematic in that regard because it's hard to, uh, to get enough food, much less any, you know, food and water, much less anything else into a major metropolitan city without electricity and without, uh, you know, transportation, modern transportation. You lose either of those, um, of course, most major metropolitan areas become uninhabitable very quickly. Um, facilities like, for example, our office, the windows don't open. So, you know, this building, if you have to operate in a non- uh, electrical environment uh, very quickly becomes uh, either too hot or too cold uh, and therefore unusable. Uh, so then, so once you deal with the, the question of, of health and safety of the populace, then you've got the issue of at what point do you start having major economic impact? Sandy, for example, and at what point does, you know, what is your break point in regards to the economic impact? Is it, you know, $100 million, a $1 billion, $10 billion? Uh, that comes into play. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that whole idea about societal cohesion. Um, you know, you have to understand, and, and as a nation, you've got to be honest with yourself, you're going to have first responders, you're going to have emergency response, you're going to have those trying to pick up the pieces. Society becomes very unpleasant very quickly, people become desperate. So, or without power, um, if you're not providing um, at least some degree of services, you know, by alternate means, you know, the U.S. National Guard or uh, in other in other countries, showing the the army or or so forth, um, you're going to quickly find this, that um, social disorder takes hold, and even your first responders or your um, you know, those trying to bring power back on, or those trying to bring the telephones back up are not going to be safe in the street. Yes. So, you know, at that point you have to factor that in as well. 
Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. Now, based on your experience, what do you think or feel that is essential for the safety and security of nation's critical infrastructure, that one fundamental thing that needs to be there? Oh, one thing. Um, well, I think it goes back to what we talked about. You have to have a plan that has been exercised in proper and you're going to have to respond one way or another. Um, that's the only way to deal with this. And like I mentioned before, it's a matter of, okay, how long do we think societally we can manage without and how quickly do we think we can bring things back up to, you know, equivalent standards or at least some sort of, you know, degraded ability to operate, if you will. Right. Um, that's going to be critical. You're going to have to understand that balance and you're going to have to operate against that. Right, right. No, I, I understand your point. Now, uh, how at this point, how are nations identifying and evaluating the vulnerability of their infrastructure? Do they have effective tools and technologies and processes to do that? I think nations fall into probably three different categories in that regard. Uh, there's the ostriches that basically just have their heads in the sand. Okay. You know, three quarters of the world or so. Um, now, half of those have, you know, are trying to, to deal with, uh, you know, not having infrastructure to begin with in the way that we think about it anyway. But the other, you know, larger, another percentage, at least of uh, certain regions that, uh, I think are just beginning now to understand that how vulnerable they are. Uh, I think the Ukraine uh, utility attack is going, you know, I think it's going to reverberate. I think that's a, a major wake up call, to be quite honest, for Europe. Uh, I briefed uh, in Europe a few years ago and, and uh, you know, they were very polite and they were understanding, but they also basically would. Um, a, a fair percentage of the individual in the room basically said, well, we're not the U.S., so we don't have to work, basically, we don't have to worry about it. And uh, I think that uh, a lot of those individuals woke up uh, a few weeks ago and, and had an epiphany, let's put it that way, after the news had in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, now, that said, the, the fact is that there are some, I think that, like I said, Eric, either beginning to wake wake up or have been working on this issue. And they are, uh, there are tools that can be um, been used. The U.S. has worked on that. You know, NIST has developed some things from commercial, that commercial entities and, and, commercial, and, uh, and also, uh, I believe, national agencies would be able to use and leverage in regards to uh, risk management. Uh, there's a number of you know, I, I think you can pretty much pay any of the big five consulting firms, and they'll be happy to come out and, and develop a strategy and you know, do a risk model for you in regards to your infrastructure. Uh, now, it, you also have to be willing to spend a lot of money so uh, and be willing to have someone else come in and do it for you versus having someone who probably understands, i.e. you and the, the individuals within the country who understand the the fact is that I don't think 
most countries have taken the time to do this. I think there's a probably maybe on both hands I could count the number of countries that have actually done this, uh, and in my mind, done it to the degree that actually makes it worthwhile. Um, you know, difference between actually doing something just to show versus doing something to actually be able to have a strategy and response and to understand the the vulnerabilities that you're that you're uh, you're dealing with. Uh, so. For those that haven't, they're going to need to take a hard look at their infrastructure. And again, it goes back to what we talked about before. Um, they need to look at the infrastructure. They need to understand what's critical to them at their, uh, in regards to their society based on the principles we talked about uh, before. Uh, and also, what the, uh, what do they have that they can uh, leverage in regards to uh, capability? Will that be commercial commercial uh, IT, uh, you know, like Silicon Valley in the U.S., or whether it be uh, some sort of international organization or corporation that they could potentially leverage on in regards to understanding better what, uh, you know, what assets they have in country that they may not have built themselves but have uh, in place that are critical to their survival or to their uh, infrastructure survival. Right. Uh, for example, I mean, one of the key issues there is if you have most most countries don't build, say, electric turbines. Um, they build, you know, those are built very, those are very large, very specially built. So most countries aren't going to have someone who necessarily understands how it was designed and how the pack, you know, the, the generation package, if you will, was put together. So uh, they're going to, you know, the country in question either needs to go back to the individual who bought it, who hopefully understands why they're using what they're using it for, or in some full level of information or, or uh, knowledge that you need, and you're actually going to have to look at uh, talking to the, the multinational that built it, for example. And that goes for you know, water facilities, it goes for transportation. So. Countries are going to, the key vulnerability a lot of countries are going to have is if they didn't build it themselves um, or they don't have an, a technology base, i.e., they don't have a, an, an in house, for lack of a better word, uh, series of companies that build something equivalent or have an understanding of the technology to the point where theoretically, if they had the equipment, they could build one themselves, then they're in, they're in, a, uh, in a tight spot. Yes, yes, no, you're absolutely right. Now, there is, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, different points from that that is a cause of concern. But uh, looking at, you know, how each nations uh, have do not have at this point, you know, similar or common ways or common standards about uh, many, you know, issues or many things how they manage or how they identify or how they evaluate. So, based on your experience, how do you? see nations identifying ways to reduce their infrastructure risk. I mean, once they identify their, you know, that, okay, these are our critical infrastructures. Now, these are the security, these are the security threats, security vulnerabilities that we have because of uh, probably, you know, because of the software that they are using or, you know, many other reasons. So once they identify the security vulnerabilities and then, you know, possible threats that are coming their way, who defines within their organization, if it's a private organization, who is in charge of you know defining the response to that? That okay, this is how we are going to manage our risk. 
critical infrastructure risk or if it's a government entity how they define what is the process or structure or you know uh, means of doing uh, figuring out or strategizing uh, this is how we are going to manage your critical infrastructure uh, security risk not only for today but also for you know coming years so is there any process or anybody doing that well i think in regards to reducing infrastructure risk um, it really, as you articulated, the, the fact is that you know, once you identified what you have and have figured out that what you know and you don't know, and then you may have actually have uh, capabilities you were unaware of, which is always nice to, to identify. But it goes back to that, that sort of single belly button issue I talked about earlier, that, that single point of authority. Um, in companies uh, and even uh, most government organizations in uh, in a lot of governments you will have you know something it's called a chief information security officer for example uh, someone that that position really is the person who's responsible whose organization is responsible for uh, assessing the risk for understanding the risk and for um, if not then at least overseeing that mitigation occurs and that person since they understand the risk they understand the business hopefully you know basically they're that that point where uh, you make a decision about what gets prioritized what gets fixed what may not get fixed when you may see some point you may have you know there's always residual risk somewhere so you can once you prioritize and decide what you're going to fix and how you're going to fix it then you basically allocate the resources that you have and anything that's left after that, you either go back to leadership and say, this is an issue, this is how it impacts the business, we need more money, or you basically make the decision that the money that will be required is better spent elsewhere in the business and therefore we're willing to accept that risk. That's the commercial answer, if you will. On the government side, um, again, with commercial entities, it's a little, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to force them to do something. Although, uh, for regulated industry uh, and so forth, uh, you, those cases, the regulator has the ability to sort of say, you "Tell me what you're doing in regard." And we're seeing this now. Tell me what you're doing in regards to cybersecurity. And in some cases, they go, "Okay, that makes sense. That works." Or they go, no, I want that assessed and needs to be changed because I don't think that's right, but I don't know. In some cases, they're just flat out saying, you're not doing enough, you know, so you need to do X, Y, or Z. Um, NERC, for example, in the U.S., uh, because of what happened has happened in the past in regards to outages and so forth, North American Electricity Reliability uh, 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 Coordination Entity, I can't remember the center. Uh, anyway. Uh, NERC is responsible for basically ensuring the grid, reliability of the grid. So they have specifically provided critical infrastructure protection requirements and standards. Um, and if the utilities don't meet those, then you're so uh, I'm not a big fan of compliance structures, but I do understand sometimes that's the only hammer you have, then that's what you use. Um, Governments, I think, 
like I said, I'm not advocating that every government should have a compliance structure, but every government, uh, national, state, whatever, uh, at the right level for that nation, maybe multiple levels as in the U.S. to make her, has to have someone or an entity that's looking at the problem and is willing to take responsibility for it, is able like the ISACs to share, is able like DHS and Department of Energy, for example, to provide some resources and say, well, we understand that from a that doesn't make sense from a commercial standpoint, whatever that mitigation may be, but that risk is a national level risk and because of that, we are going to pony up a little bit of money or we're going to provide some assistance, something along those lines. That is where government is, you know, basically government has, um, I think the incentivized generally works better in most cases, but there's sometimes, sometimes when legislation is required. Yes. And every government's going to have to look at that for themselves and be careful about it because you don't want to legislate to the point where you hammer a business out of a, where you basically self-deny, if you will, or, or uh, a service by legislating it out of business. Um, but, you know, it's, there, may, there may be certain requirements or certain levels. Uh, in the U.S., the, like I said, the, the U.S. has taken the viewpoint that um, we're not going to legislate specific, at least at this point, we're not going to legislate specific security level requirements or specific security controls for each of our infrastructure. But there is a requirement, uh, not a requirement, there's an encouragement to assess risk and to, to work at how mitigating it in regards to what makes sense for the business. And then also, uh, like I said, I think the other part that comes does have influence and should continue to have influence is for those cases where you're a major customer, just like every other customer, service level agreements. And basically if you're an air base uh, or you're an army base and uh, electrical power is critical to your ability to operate, in whatever timely fashion, you know, you're going to pay a little extra potentially for it, but you basically stipulate, I need this level of a certainty in regards to power uh, with it, and that I am a priority when, uh, when something happens. And that is uh, something that we've written in the contractual agreements and is actually, you know, enforceable uh, without necessarily having to, you know, put the entire industry into a le legislative uh, stranglehold. Right, right, right. No, I, I hear your point on that. Now, compliance, again, you know, uh, it's a very challenging uh, situation because in this case, cybersecurity risk, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure how compliance, uh, you know, or regulations would make uh, any difference as far as, you know, security. It's uh, the nature of security threats are changing so rapidly. So I am not sure that, you know, compliance will be effective. And the uh, problem is that once organizations, corporations, or any entity within in the, any industry, uh, they have only limited resources and uh, compliance, you know, and legal risk and all that, they are forced to, you know, ha address that first because they don't have any choice. And then they think that, you know, okay, we have a, we have met all the com compliance requir requirements or regulatory requirements, so we don't have to do anything more. So they miss out on the opportunity of actually you know, staying on top of identifying the cybersecurity risks that are coming their way. So that is a real challenge. But there is one growing concern that I was thinking about that since about the power grid equipment, 
is that since the power grid equipment supports just about every critical service, water, oil and gas systems, manufacturing, telecommunications, transportation and banking, a targeted attack against these equipment can cause outages of up to 9 to 18 months. That's what some of the reports says. As many of the large components of the grid are not made in the United States, if you talk about uh, United States, and cannot be replaced in days or weeks. What are your thoughts on this, you know, critical vulnerability? Well, I, I think that, and I, two minds of this. Uh, I think that in reality, the grid is a little more resilient than some people give it credit for, first of all. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we should allow ourselves uh, a false sense of security. You're absolutely right there. I mean, there are certain transformers that are, you know, they're, they're just mammoth entities and uh, they take a long time to produce, you know, months, if not years, in some cases, to get new new ones uh, based on supply chain. And then, uh, you know, generally there, there's only a very limited number of spares, um, you know, to the point of a few, uh, depending on uh, on the companies in question. Uh, there are some of that. What has happened is that the, uh, the U.S. in the U.S. case, and I think in a few other countries as well, having either required or encouraged utilities and uh, generation companies to uh, develop plans to sort of share assets in the event of a cyber attack. So, if you have a massive attack and where you lose uh, uh, let's just say a limited number of key uh, nodes, transformers, uh, that you are able to, you know, basically make a decision within the group that uh, company X needs that transform more than company Y at this point, and that there's an ability to move some of those assets around a little bit. Not a, it's not an ideal solution, not a perfect solution, and you know, it, it only works if the the number of nodes or substations in the case of electricity that you lose are, are uh, limited. Um, yeah, from the standpoint of actually on the system, that's a different issue in regards to you know just having something that that prevents the system from a software standpoint, prevents the system from operating. Excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. So, I think that. Like I said, I tend to be somewhat down the middle of the road. Um, I believe that from a capability standpoint, it would be very difficult for anyone outside of one of those handful of nation state actors we talked about earlier having the ability to really um, cause the type of damage we're talking about where we would, you know, basically you couldn't have enough transformers in place or enough assets in place to uh, uh, at least deal with the the critical aspects of uh, capabilities of the grid, the, the critical nodes, if you will. Now, that said, adversaries are gaining capability every day. Uh, the capabilities of, you know, quite honestly, the capabilities of a, of a script kitty today are well above what some, you know, what most when I was an Air Force officer. So, uh, you know, we're seeing this capability where. This, this case where the destructiveness, if you will, of asset or destructiveness of capability is moving down chain in regards to the threat actors. Um, so from that perspective, you know, what I say today may not be true 
tomorrow or at least you know in a couple in, in a few years when it comes to nation states i'll be quite honest there is probably at least when it comes to the major players we talked about the, the handful of countries with capabilities uh, that are fairly significant and sophisticated there's no country, no company in the world that is going to basically be able to stand up to a coordinated nation-state attack by itself, um, or probably even even in a group in that that regard. What this is where the the intervention of the government, the coordination, the capabilities from a national standpoint, focused, and that's the case where um, I think you do see the the need for, as we talked about earlier, that coordination, that better uh, ability to leverage assets and having someone, in this case, like I said, probably at a, at a national agency level, who would be responsible for, you know, doing tra air traffic control, if you will, and differentiating uh, between this priority versus that priority and, and sort of saying, no, 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 I'm sorry, but, you know, we need that substation transformer here, not there. Um, and then also uh, what a lot of people don't realize and don't think about, uh, just as a, as, a, you know, as a final thought on that issue, at some point, just like every military engagement when you have a cyber attack, you're going to have to make a decision about when do I segment the grid? What when do I basically say I'm going to lose a finger in order to save And that's very hard to do. Uh, it's not something that is easy from, you know, whether you're a commercial entity or a government entity. entity. But at some point there has to be some decisions made that we're going to segment the grid. So in order to have some operate while others may not, we're going to do this and we may have to prioritize certain uh, areas over others either because we need to have power in the cities versus maybe in some of the rural areas because uh, people, you know, people are more, have a better ability to operate without uh, constant power in some cases in a, in a less urban environment. Or the case, you know, reality may be we have to be able to, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm using the U.S. as an example, but this goes the same for any country. Uh, or we have to be able to generate um, military capability, i.e. get aircraft off the ground or military personnel into transport planes and deployed somewhere. And that means that there's going to be a priority for the next base. So, and every country has to come to sort of those decisions in the end uh, from their own security standpoint, uh, sorry about that, uh, in regards to whether whether the either there's either a loss of life issue, a balance of of uh, national versus economic capabilities, uh, or just national survival may come into play in some of these scenarios, where there may be cases where you move from first coordination to like we said segmentation to at some point you may even get to uh, you know I, I don't think that the U.S. contemplates, has contemplated this, and most Western countries have contemplated, but at some point, uh, if you find yourself in a in a true war situation where there may be a decision that it's no longer a commercial asset, it's now a national asset, and therefore, you have to exercise national security control. 
Yes, you are absolutely right. Now, Ernest, this is based on years of your uh, service to this industry and what you have done for with the critical infrastructure. Uh, what is your biggest takeaway towards securing criti critical infrastructure? Uh, my biggest takeaway, to be quite honest, is that you have to know what you have. I mean, that's the simplest thing. Uh, and by that, I mean you have to know what assets that you're actually looking at and trying to defend. That's the same whether you're a company or you're a country. Uh, if you don't know what you have and you don't know where it's at and you don't know what it's connected to, in this case, then you're, there's no way to defend it. You can't defend what you don't know. Yes, you're absolutely right. Now, what is that one thing you would like to change about how critical infrastructure security is viewed and addressed today? Hype. Um, I think in sometimes we, and you know, sometimes I think we tend to either hype the threat a little more than what it is, or in you know just looking at the sort of the sky is falling mentality, if you will, um, that has been very prevalent. Which the problem with that is that eventually, if the sky doesn't fall, uh, you desensitize your your audience, and um, you know, then when the sky does fall, they're all looking around and going, but you know, you, you told us this would happen, and then you did, then it didn't happen. Now it's happening. Um, so I, I think from from that regard, we have to be careful. We are we run the risk, and we talk, and I talked about trust before. We run the risk of not being perceived as trustworthy stewards of our businesses or of our agencies or of our countries if we don't walk the fine line between uh, the small or help sunshine and and marigolds. Uh, so if we're not careful we, we run the risk like I said of uh, basically not being trusted by the people we need to be trusted by so when we do give the warning that actually something really bad is happening or going to happen or that we need to deal with, then we run the risk of them assuming that we're just typing again. Uh, I saw the, you know, one of the things as an Air Force officer you learn very quickly, your credibility, and quite honestly as a consultant I learned this too, your credibility is your number one asset. That's why people, you know, people will trust you if you have credibility and you have a reputation. It's also the easiest thing to lose. And as soon as you lose it, as a security professional, you lose your ability at that point to influence the decision makers who are going to make the decision about that's important to the business, not important to the business. We're going to resource that. That's not a critical national issue. All those in the end rely upon your credibility as a professional. Yes, no, you are absolutely right. It's all about credibility. So, uh, Ernest, we are going to conclude our session here. Uh, we, have, we have taken so much of your time. I think we have passed uh, one hour. Uh, and this, you have such a wealth of experience that we can probably talk about these, you know, critical infrastructure <laughs> for probably hours, you know, without uh, stopping. But I think we'll have to conclude our session here. And uh, we appreciate you 
you know coming on risk roundup and spending so much time and giving your valuable insight and input to how we can manage our uh, critical infrastructure security risk effectively so thank you for that Ernest. well thank you for the invitation and again it was a pleasure speaking with you jesri Thank you, Ernest. So while cyberspace has created unprecedented opportunities for economic growth across NGIOAI, it has also created unparalleled opportunities for criminals, spies, activities, activists, thieves, and opportunists to cause serious economic and national security challenges and security risks nations face today. How effectively nations or each of its component will be able to work together toward the common goal of securing cyberspace will ultimately impact how secure each nation's critical infrastructure will be and the degree to which the global society continues to reap the benefits of living in the digital global age. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very purpose so that we can collectively identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing nations in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we have an opportunity to have a dialogue with uh, experts and executives like Ernest and uh, who are kind enough to come on Risk Roundup and share their wisdom, share their insight, and give us you know, uh, their valuable feedback so that we can collectively make the process of managing the security risk you know effectively in a better in this uh, very complicated and very complex world so let's manage the existing and emerging risks together for more information on the risk roundups to watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcast please go to riskgroupllc.com do not forget to share and subscribe until next time i'm jayshik pandey signing off uh, see you next time thank you